Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss exceptional practices and efficient resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Today, we're talking about something that I think is going to be incredibly interesting to our listeners and hopefully very beneficial. I'm here with Todd Price, the Roma Bible Translation Team Coordinator for Pioneers, a global church planning organization. Todd earned a PhD in Corpus Linguistics and New Testament Greek at the London School of Theology. He's written on the structural lexicology in the Greek New Testament with Gorgias Press. Todd, thank you so much for being uh, on this episode today. How are you doing? Doing well. Great to be with you, Travis. Good. I'm glad. This is going to be good. We've been uh, able to chat quite a bit beforehand and just get to know one another, and I'm excited for people to hear what you have to say and to hear about this topic in particular and also what it's like to to be a Ph.D. in, in Greek uh, New Testament studies and be on the field translating the Bible. So I think this is going to be really fruitful. Um, tell us a little bit first. What's your work like with Pioneers? I serve in the uh, city of Budapest, Hungary, in Eastern Europe, uh, before that, we lived in Croatia and Bosnia doing church planning and theological education and then moved into Bible translation. We'll actually be moving into Croatia again. And what I do is train Roma or gypsies, most people call them, how to do Bible translation. So I'm the coordinator and also the consultant for Bible translation in five different Roma dialects. Okay, and you were telling me something a little bit interesting right before we started, uh, just the nature of how you how you work on a text with a team, that it's it's not mostly you all sitting in a room together, right? We're kind of into the 21st century. Describe a little bit for us what the process even looks like. Sure. I live several hours away from the translators, and also the fact that we're dealing with five different languages, it spans a an area that would take about I don't know, nine or 10 hours to drive. So in essence, what I do is I train the translators. I go meet with them, usually in their homes, and we talk about translation theory. We do some practice together, and then I leave, and they work at home. They have these 10-inch Android tablets with keyboards, or some of them work on laptops, and we have software in which they can draft. So they've got a source text, and they do a quick draft, into the Roma dialect, and then that's all saved online. I can check it from my office, and then we compare notes and then meet together again every every other month. So this is not just ESV.org and Google Translate. <laughs> no. Maybe no. something a little bit more uh, in-depth than that. And yes. obviously that's a crude way to put it. But <laughs> but we know that this is a, an in-depth thing, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear uh, how this uh, – correlates to your PhD work. But first, I want to say something. Uh, Pioneer Bible Translators is a great organization. That's a different organization. It is. Which confused me a little bit, but mm-hmm. I, I'm glad to hear this. Um, I'm glad that the church I'm a part of supports you and your ministry and Pioneers. And uh, uh, so that is far, far more a church planting organization, right? It is. Pioneers goes back to about 1979 when it was founded. It's grown quite a bit to, I think, about 3,500 missionaries. And most of the members are involved in church planning. I did that for a while, and to be honest, found out that that was not my strength. It's an important aspect, but it's definitely not where I was uh, equipped. What I was equipped for. So I am a bit of an odd duck. Uh, Pioneers is very gracious and kind, and lets you use your gifts. And mine are more in translation and uh, teaching. So I've been doing that primarily for the last. Uh, we've been with them twenty three years, and I've been doing that the last fifteen or so. I find that deeply interesting. Um, I think it's great anytime an organization says, what are you gifted in? What are you passionate about? How can we support you in that? And how can that benefit our overall mission? So I would encourage uh, anyone and everyone to go check out Pioneer, see what that's about. But I also want to talk a little bit about your, your PhD work. So during that time of doing Bible translation, you decided, I need more school. 
what what drove that decision? Where'd you go? What'd you study? Tell us a little bit about that story. Sure. At the time, we were living in Sarajevo, Bosnia, and I had been involved in a lot of different projects. We had started a Bible translation for Bosnian Muslims back in 96, and in order to do that, we started a Bible society. But everyone on board was was quite involved and, and very interested and gifted, but no one really had credentials beyond a uh, uh, bachelor's level. And I knew that the organization and the translation project to be taken seriously really needed more behind it. And at the same time, I was teaching at three small Bible schools. We, we founded a school, and it was trying to move toward accreditation. It was a small school. And when I say small, I mean five students, which is common in Eastern Europe. And again, we had those on the board who were wonderful people, but no one really with uh, the credentials. So I felt like for the sake of the Bible school and the Bible society, it would be helpful to have more training. But I also found out that in translation work, there's just so much to it. And I had been challenged in not only my bachelor's, but in my master's studies to go deeper in specific areas, uh, specifically with New Testament Greek. And I found that there really wasn't time to do that on the field day in and day out. I would need to set aside some time. And the practical way to do that would be PhD studies where you're able to really drill down, focus on something in particular where you had the time to go deep into an area that perhaps very few had looked into. So it was a both and in the sense that I I wanted to learn for myself, but I also felt for the mission projects of teaching and translation that it would help the organizations go further with their chances of uh, recognition and accreditation. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, so I want to talk a little bit about this this work that you've produced, structural lexicology. Mm-hmm. Okay, define it for me. <laughs> sure. Well, most people are familiar with uh, lexicon, you know, which is a dictionary, or more particularly, a lexicon is a dictionary for a specific limited corpus. For example, the Greek New Testament. Uh, lexicography is the science of writing dictionaries, but lexicology goes one step beyond that and are actually above that I should say it's the whole idea of how do you decide on meaning how do you deal with lexis so structural lexicology is something that I sort of stumbled into when I was learning about corpus linguistics and how it has been used in the study of English German and other modern languages actually to teach non-native speakers to study a language. So it looks at, in, in, in the short answer is, the structure of a language, how words and phrases go together, how grammatical structures go together, and how they influence the way that we use language and the meaning that we communicate. Okay, so am I right in understanding that you kind of discovered this as you were attempting to understand the dialects that you were attempting to translate? No, it was actually when I went into my PhD studies, I, I had an interest in Greek, but I wanted to to really go deeper with um, understanding context. And one of the things I found, not only in my own studies, but actually when it comes to translation, is that we have a tendency to open up our lexicon, whether that be Loanida or BDAG or something, and we see a list of five, ten different definitions uh, glosses or definitions, and there is a difference. And we say, well, I like this one, or this one seems to fit where I think this verse is going. But what we don't do is we don't look at how the language is actually limited by the structure of a sentence, the structure of a phrase. So part of it was just my own study 
of Greek and just realizing a lexicon can be a smorgasbord where you just grab something and and stick it in there without really the the background to see is this really how native speakers use it. And then secondly, yes, in Bible translation, when you're especially looking into how do I put this into another language, so you're dealing cross-linguistically, not only are you trying to figure out what did the Greek mean, how would I express this in English, but now I have all the issues of this this third or fourth language, uh, such as a Roma dialect, and trying to figure out what can guide me to make wise exegetical decisions instead of just picking what I see in the lexicon. So it was both my own personal studies, wanting to go deeper in original languages, as well as, as you mentioned, trying to think how can we help people use these tools, exegetical tools, when it comes to translating, because there's still so much to do in that area. So what I, what I hear you describing, this kind of opening up BDAG and saying, well, here are five options, which one do I like the best, is almost kind of the, the Greek New Testament equivalent of having your amplified Bible <laughs> right. and saying, well, this can mean five different things, and I just don't like the idea of it meaning this one, mm-hmm. or this doesn't mesh, mesh up or match up as much with what I think the rest of the New Testament's talking about. Right. I think that's important and something that uh, we can have a, a facade of study okay, I know some Greek, I have these resources, and not necessarily apply them well. That's something that I'm trying to be as disciplined as I can about as I learn more about the languages, not to get a false sense of security in in, in my exegesis, but to really do the hard work of understanding. And I I hope that this work um, can be a benefit to some of our our listeners, that Mm -hmm. they will find this a helpful tool. Tell me a little bit. So, have you applied this? I mean, what passages of Scripture just immediately come to mind to you that, man, my, my work in this really helped me to understand X, Y, or Z? Well, there are actually a lot of different areas. What I started with in my study was to—I started with the word soon, which is a, um, a preposition which means with. Now, in the English language, with is probably the most polysemous word in existence. In other words, it has the most potential meanings. Some dictionaries even say it has 50, 60, 70 different meanings. So we take the word with, and as native speakers, I know that when I say that I am cooking with oregano, that that's um, an addition. But if I say I am um, going to town with George, that that we would call, um, we would talk about, two people being together, but I can use it differently. And I say, I fight with the Japanese in World War II. If I'm an American, that means I was against them. If I say I fight with Squadron X in World War II and I'm an American, that probably means I was on the same side. So with has lots of different meanings that are contextually constrained. If I say I hit you with my rifle, again, that's instrumentality. So when we get to the New Testament... And we we do that where we open a lexicon and say, okay, soon has all these meanings, and we just pick one and try to grab it and and stick it into a verse. What I found is I actually made a corpus of uh, 2.2 million tokens, which means words in their um, individual uses. And I went through and I studied every occurrence of soon or with, and I did apply it to numerous passages of Scripture, um, which... For example, one that comes to mind is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says God will, uh, along with the test or temptation, make a way of escape. Uh, some commentators try to say that means at the same time or simultaneity. In other words, 
when this happens, soon this happens. But as I looked at the corpus, I found that that occurred only a very small portion of the time. I think it was less than half of a percent, whereas the much more common usage of soon or with is when you have the same, when it's modified by the same verb, that it means the action took place for both of those. So it actually in that in that verse, and this is controversial, it would be saying God not only made the escape, but he actually also made the test. Now, so that was an, an interesting one where we're not trying to get God off the hook and say, well, when this temptation comes up, at the same time he'll provide this. No, actually God provided not only the escape, but even the test itself, which I do think affects the exegesis of that passage a bit. So there, there are others. I, I think I looked at um I don't know, maybe a dozen different passages. Nothing earth-shaking, but again, in exegesis and in linguistics, it's not often that you come across a, a golden nugget that changes everything. In fact, if you do, you probably want to second-guess yourself a bit. It's more the smaller differences. And what I emphasized is, in linguistics, we talk about word sense disambiguation, which means if a word has four or five meanings, the context usually disambiguates it and makes it clear what it is. Well, because we're dealing with a language that we don't speak as a native tongue, I'm suggesting we look at it a little more conservatively and call it word sense possibility delimitation. In other words, if the lexicon says we've got 15 possibilities, by paying attention to the structure and how this word or this phrase has been used in a larger body outside of the New Testament in in Koine Greek, we can narrow down, we can delimit the possibilities. In other words, instead of saying, here are 15 meanings. I think we can delimit it down to three that are realistic. So a lot of my work was saying, okay, if we look at this passage and we, we look at 20 different exegetes and commentators, they're kind of all over the map. So-and-so says this, this, and this. But we can usually delimit the possibilities and say, you know what, probably only two or three of these possibilities match the data, that they, that they stand with the corpus and show how the word has been used consistently in a large body. I don't know if that helps or not, but <laughs> I, I, th- I think it's helpful as, as much as I can track with you. So uh, let me ask this. I feel like there would be a little bit. Okay, I got to say this first. Mm-hmm. That word, polysemous. <laughs> yes. Spell that for me. Okay. P o l y s e m o u s. Okay. So in American English, we usually say a polyseme. In other words, that is a word with multiple meanings. Mm. So polysemous is just the adjective. If, if a word is polysemous, it has multiple meanings. Now, almost all words in any language are polysemous. You have like the word run, which has, you know, you can run a computer, you can run a race, you can, your nose can run, you know, you have all kinds of ideas. Um, some words are very specific, you don't have that. But oftentimes our exegetical problems are with polysemes or polysemous. It can have several meanings. How on earth do we know what it means? Another example, which again is not necessarily earth-shattering, but in uh, one of Peter's epistles, um, he says he says that, um, that well, the term there is synodesis, which can either mean conscious, sorry, consciousness or conscience, which are actually quite different. You can be conscious of something, or your conscience can be telling you something. And in the passage, it says conscience or synodesis um, theu. So. Many comment so the commentators are basically divided. Is this saying conscious consciousness of God, in other words, being aware of God, or is this conscience given by God? And so 
in the in my book, I, I look at those structures and I say I, I specifically try to find out, okay, this meaning conscience is only used in these settings. This one, consciousness, is used in a separate setting. And so in my study, I would say really we can delimit down and say it has to mean this in Peter's use. We can't just pick which one we like. It actually follows um, what I call a colligation, which means it following a grammatical structure, or a collocation, which means it appears with these certain words with this meaning. Anything that can offer a reserved and qualified clarification to something, <laughs> I think has got to be deeply helpful to exegesis, or else we, we just already have our pre-understanding of the text, and we're just going to kind of use BDAG to our, mm-hmm. our greatest advantage, right? Right, and, right. And so I, I appreciate works like this, and I appreciate the work you did on this, something that advances hermeneutics and helps future exegetes of a particular passage mm-hmm. come to the right understanding of the text, rather than just narrowly focusing in on what does this one phrase mean. You've mm-hmm. offered us something to help us do that far beyond what you cover in this book, I'm sure. And so I, I just find that deeply helpful. I hope that others will take these ideas, maybe look up this book and, and look into this. But there's another thing I really hope our listeners consider. Um, I hope they consider that they are in the 1% to be generous of, of understanding of uh, if they know if they've done first-year Greek even, not to give a false sense of security, um, but especially those who are doing doctoral work in the languages, they have such an understanding that so few people throughout the history of the church have ever had, just because of the state of scholarship and education in the world right now. And there's a, a whole world out there who don't even have the Bible in their language. I, I just find that a massive disparity. So give us your best charge here. Why should those interested in New Testament studies consider being a missionary scholar? We talk about pastor scholars. We talk about doing the the, the day-in, day-out work of, of counseling and administration and preaching and teaching the Bible to a particular congregation, and yet doing research and writing for the broader Christian world. Why should our listeners consider maybe becoming a missionary scholar and doing Bible translation? That is an excellent question. Today there are 7,000 languages spoken in the, in, in the world, and of those 7,000, about 1,600 have not even one verse of the Bible. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So like these Roma uh, or Gypsy dialects, um, we're, working, we're, we're, we're working in areas that don't have the Scriptures, and so another you know, 1,600 languages with absolutely no uh, scripture whatsoever, but the other sad fact is that of the seven thousand languages in the world, four thousand five hundred don't have a complete Bible. There's a tendency to get a gospel out there, or maybe even the New Testament, but to go and finish the entire Bible is actually quite rare today. There are one and a half billion people in the world that don't have a complete Bible in their mother tongue, and the cost and the time that it takes to do a translation from start to finish is usually about 25 years and probably a million dollars. So my challenge is so much of the world is still waiting for the full Bible in the first language while we have, good grief, you know, 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 translations in English, and there's just so little. But it's not just translation. I, I love translation and I'm committed to it, but I'd love to see tools for the global church that go even beyond that. Because think about if even in English, if all we had was one English translation, 
Well, that's great, but it's it's not really the whole picture. That's just the starting point. We need commentaries. We need lexica. We need Bible dictionaries. We need all the tools that we take for granted. So not only is the world uh, lacking a full Bible, but most languages have nothing even close to what we have for Bible study tools. So that's something we're doing. We started a, a little project called surprisingly, uh, translatable exegetical tools. The whole idea behind it is most languages, let's say Croatian or Serbian where I work, or a lot of other languages, they don't have a lexicon. They don't have exegetical tools. So you're stuck with this thing where you either take public domain things like Strong's or Thayer or something sadly out of date, but at least it's available public domain so you're not having to pay royalties and, and deal with all those issues. Um, so you have that idea. This is what is available to them. They can't afford Bible works or Logos or Accordance. So they have these out-of-date English-based exegetical tools that are not only um, hard to understand, but I mean, I mean, they're written in 18th century or, or early 19th century English. So what my challenge has been is scholars should, should step up and say, well, let's provide a lexicon, or let's provide a commentary, let's provide even study Bible notes in, in language that's written for someone who doesn't speak English as a first language, that doesn't say, okay, go see this, this lexicon, or go see this commentary, which is worthless if that doesn't exist in the language. So we have a team working on Bible study notes, on a lexicon, on a grammar written for people who don't speak English as a first language with the intent that that be translated so that then in Croatian, in, in Serbian, in Romanian, and in these different languages, they have the exegetical tools they need. But it's a different mindset. It's not, we're not making money on it. We're never going to publish it. We're never going to get accolades of, you know, this fantastic new tool out there because it's going to be translated by volunteers in order to make available to the global church tools that they can understand. In other words, you're writing them in order to be translated, in order to be downstream. So there's just a huge need for that. And I've I've been encouraged, scholars, I won't name them, but some that you've heard of that volunteer their time for that. They help with the lexicon, they help with the grammar. But there's a big need even for those in the pastor pastorate, um, if they could give two or three hours a week to volunteer to write these materials. There, there is a a team available. There are works going on to help make this available to the global church, but it just takes a lot of time and a lot of manpower. That's an interesting concept. You know, I, I didn't even uh, know about that when we first talked about having this interview, and I'm glad to hear about it. How can people, one, um, get a hold of Pioneers and see about volunteering, see about serving in some way? And two, how can they reach out to you about this particular resource? Probably the easiest thing would be just to go to my website, which is toddlprice.com, because then I can kind of field the questions and find out what part they're interested in. Pioneers.org is another great website. And then a project that we are putting together is called unfoldingword.org, and that's another website that's great to show all the resources that are being gathered to help Bible translators and to help equip the global church. So any of those sites would be, would be good. Man, thank you for a good conversation. It's it's just refreshing. Uh, not that the vast majority of people I meet who, who do biblical studies, who do languages, are really some of the more humble people I've met, which is not <laughs> what I would have guessed, to be honest with you. Just 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 to be honest with you. Not what I would have guessed. Um, but it's it's really been the case for me. However, I just want to say, man, the, the way you're giving up 
um, years of your life in order to serve a people group who's not your people group even. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the beauty of missions. Mm-hmm. I'm glad for what you do. I think it's uh, fantastic, and I hope that people will look into these resources, look into these opportunities, and see what they can do. I do want to ask, what scriptures are you meditating on here lately? I think the most helpful thing for me and what I do in my devotional life is I follow Robert Murray Machane's reading program. So for my own private devotions, I just go through an Old Testament chapter, usually in a New Testament. And then for my family devotions in the evening, we follow the other reading. So it gets you through the New Testament twice in a year and the Old Testament in I sing New Testament and Psalms twice in the Old Testament once. So um, lately I've been in all things in Second Chronicles, which is not the most exciting group of uh, scriptures, but it has been interesting to see God's faithfulness to Solomon, to Asa, to the other kings at that time. And then um, in the New Testament, I just love Paul's epistles, so we've been going through First uh, Thessalonians to some degree, looking at that, just how thankful Paul is for the believers. I know in ministry, whether it be the pastorate or teaching or as a missionary, the saying goes, it'd be great, the ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people, but Paul had a different attitude. He was grateful for them, and I've been challenged in that area to thank God for his church, for the saints. Uh, with all of our warts, all of our quirks, uh, we can be grateful for one another, whether they be people here in Kansas City where I live on furlough or Roma living in villages in Croatia, that as Paul was grateful for the church, I've been really challenged and, and humbled to think, wow, I have a lot to be grateful for. And a lot of that is what God is doing in the hearts of his people. Amen. Well, hey, grateful for you and your ministry, Todd. Thank you for being on uh, the podcast. Thank you. It's an honor. I appreciate it. Youth band That's jamming the youth out. Band jamming they're doing. They're from what I can. At least the drummer's on time. I mean, <laughs> he is. I was that drummer many a year, and I was not always on time. <laughs> okay. um, so I had a very job. gracious congregation. So I'm glad for that. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much thank for being you, here. Travis. This has been this has been great.